We're in Romans chapter 8 again. Um, You know, whenever a team takes to the court or takes the field, they do so with a great desire to win. They do so with a a desire to come out of the contest victorious. That's true even for Iowa State. I mean, they want to win, but sometimes it's knowing how to or having the ability to that gets in our way. It's true of the Christian life as well. We want to live a victorious Christian life, but how do we do that? And how do we have the ability to be able to do that that eludes us sometimes? Last week we began looking at this section of Romans 8 verses 9 through 17 and seven ways in which the Spirit gives victory. And uh, we'll just uh, review some of that. We only got through point four last week, so we'll quickly review those first four and then get to point five. So we saw last week from verse nine, the Spirit indwells us. He indwells only believers, but He indwells all believers. There's no such thing as an unindwelt believer. The Spirit indwells, and that's the key for victory is the, the presence of the Spirit in our life. Secondly, the Spirit regenerates. The, as we saw, the body is dead because of sin. There's, there's no hope for this body. It's, it's a goner. But that's not the end of the story. The Spirit is life because of righteousness. And we will have uh, everlasting life because we are regenerated, made new. Thirdly, the Spirit resurrects. The same power that it took to raise Jesus is available to us to resurrect our dead bodies from the grave and to give us new bodies um, which are immortal. As Greg and Lois are singing that song today and about there being no more tears, no more crying then, thought just struck me that in our resurrected body, we're not going to have a need for tear ducts. I wonder what other things might change, but I mean, why would we need tear ducts? There'll be no more tears, no more reason for crying ever. So that'll be one of our changes, I suppose. Uh, Fourth, the Spirit enables us. We are obligated to live for God. In fact, we are to put to death the deeds of the flesh, as we saw last week. But we are enabled to do that by the Spirit. And now, the... uh, The fifth way in which the the Holy Spirit gives victory is that the Spirit leads. Verse 14. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. The Spirit leads. Whoever is led by the Spirit, that person is the Son of God. There are many different ways in which the Spirit can lead in our lives, and many of them kind of subjective and maybe personal to us and to our own situation at the time and to our level of spiritual growth and uh, being attuned to the Spirit and so forth. A lot of different ways that the Holy Spirit can lead, and and some of them may seem uh, strange to us, like the Spirit can lead through dreams or visions, Those of us who are going through the study of Daniel have seen how God led Daniel and then kings through 
dreams and visions, but that's not normal. That's not how God usually does it. Even for Daniel, those dreams and visions came like 10 to 15 years apart. It'd be a space like 15 years where there was nothing. So it's not how God normally does it. So we want to focus more on how God, uh, the two most common and consistent ways that God leads us by his spirit. And I believe those are in understanding God's word and in living God's word. The Holy Spirit leads us in our Christian life by enabling us to understand the word of God. In fact, Jesus said about the Holy Spirit, when he, the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. The, the Holy Spirit is the one who guides us into the truth of God. He is the one who illuminates us. He, he shines the light on the word, but he illumines us inside too to enable us to be able to finally see it. We read in 1 Corinthians 2 that unbelievers are not able to understand the word of God. It's foolishness to them. But because we have his spirit, his spirit shows us, enables us to understand the things which are in the word of God. And so he leads us into truth. In, in order for us to know God's will, we need to know God's word. And so in understanding the word of God, the Holy Spirit leads us. But it's not just in understanding, it's in living God's word. Uh, you see at the beginning of verse 14, for as many as are led by the Spirit of God. The, the for there uh, wants us to look back at what was just said because it's uh, drawing a conclusion or explaining what was just said. So let's back up to verse 12 and 13. <clears throat> Therefore, brethren, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the, of the body, you will live. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God. And so the connection here, the for there is, how do you put to death the deeds of the body? It's by the Spirit, and it's by being led by the Spirit. So the Spirit not only gives us understanding into God's Word, but shows us how to actually live God's Word. It's not just knowing, but doing. Not just understanding the word, but living the word. The Holy Spirit himself is our enabler. And according to John 16, Jesus said that the Holy Spirit always leads believers to glorify Jesus. He always leads us to glorify Jesus. So that's one of the ways we know that the Spirit is leading us. If we are able to understand the Word, if He shows us how to live out the Word, if in our heart there is a desire to glorify Jesus, then we know the Spirit is leading us. Um, how about day by day in the ordinary circumstances of life? How does the Spirit lead you or does He lead you? Did, did He lead you in what to wear today? Some of you, I think, yes, and some. <laughs> um, I mean, does it matter to the Holy Spirit what color shirt you wear or if your socks match or, you know. 
uh, does, does God have a will in those things? And I believe he does. But I don't believe that means that we have to every moment pray about every decision of, okay, which pair of socks do I put on or whatever. But if it's more the idea that our whole life is given to God and directed by God and, and through knowing that every part of my life is under his guidance, his leadership, and I want it to be yielded to him, then I trust that he will guide me in making decisions about how I dress or where I go or what I do, what I eat, uh, what I buy or not. He directs in all those things if my whole life is yielded to him. To, to be led by the Spirit is to have the direction of one's whole life guided by the Spirit. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not onto your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge Him, and He will direct your paths. He will guide you. If in all of your ways you yield yourself to Him, He will direct your path. So the Spirit leads in understanding God's Word and being able to live out God's Word. And according to verse 14 here, He leads in confirming our relationship with God. Look at verse 14 again. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. As many are as. That, that whole group, everyone who is led, those are the sons of God. He confirms our relationship with God. If you're being led by the Spirit, you are His child. In fact, being led by the Spirit here is a distinguishing sign of being a child of God. How do you know if you are a child of God? Or how do you, how do you discern whether someone else might be a child of God? Are they being led by the Spirit? Because all who are led by the Spirit, these are the sons of God. So the Spirit leads us to victory. Number six, the Spirit assures us. Verse 15. For you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. It is not the spirit of bondage. We did not receive the spirit of bondage to fear again. I think uh, the again should go with, the, with to fear. So that we would go back into the fear of whether we are going to be pleasing to God or not. Whether he's going to say, well, you know, um, you failed me one time too many and so you're, you're not going to make it. We we're, don't receive the the bondage of fear like we had before we knew Christ or like the, the uh, Jews had bef before under the law. But we have not received that spirit of bondage. We have no need to fear again. And this whole section is talking about how we can have confidence and assurance in God and in the victory that he is leading us surely to. We have no need for fear anymore so we have not received a spirit of bondage to fear again but we have received the spirit of adoption the spirit of adoption 
This is the heart of the children. That is that the Spirit not only bestows adoption upon us, but He makes us aware of our adoption. He assures us of it inside of ourselves that we are the children of God. That, that we have not just been given the status as adopted children, we have been given the heart of children to really know Him and to have a relationship with Him, whereby we call out, Abba, Father. For you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption. The, the spirit of adoption and and as Paul sometimes talks about this idea of adoption, it would be good to just think about that for a moment because for some people, even today, the concept of adoption can carry a kind of idea of a second-class status in the family. But um, in Roman culture in Paul's day, an adopted child, especially an adopted son, sometimes had greater privilege and prestige than the natural children that's because uh, according to the way Roman law worked and Roman families worked the, the father was the uh, had absolute rule over the lives of his children he could, he could kill them if he wanted to or cast them out or sell them into slavery he, he, whatever he wanted to do with his children and if a Roman father was disappointed in his son's uh, skill or character or some other kind of attribute, he would search diligently for a son available for adoption who demonstrated the qualities that he desired. <clears throat> if the boy proved worthy uh, up to the father's expectations, then the, the father would take whatever necessary steps there were to legally adopt then this son. At the death of the father, a favored adopted son would often inherit the father's title, the major part of his estate, and would be the primary progenitor of the family name. Well, because of the great importance of this, the process of Roman law, of Roman adoption, involves several carefully prescribed legal procedures. The first step totally severed the boy's legal and social relationship to his natural family. The second step placed him permanently into his new family. In addition to that, all of his previous debts and other obligations were eradicated as if, as if they had never existed. And for the transaction, transaction to become legally binding, it also required the presence of seven reputable witnesses who would testify if necessary to any challenge of the adoption after the father's death. So the process here and the idea of adoption was not something to be taken lightly. Uh, and especially if we look at it in, in view of Israel who um, had, had not kept the law, who had rejected the Messiah, and now God is adopting for himself believers from Gentiles. Look at Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 through 7.
Galatians 4, starting at verse 4. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent forth his spirit, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying out, Abba, Father. Therefore, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir of God through Christ. Notice again, verse 6. And because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying out, Abba, Father. Notice in verse 6 there, it's the spirit in us who's crying out, Abba, Father. We'll come back to that idea in a moment. Go to Ephesians chapter 1. It's the couple pages to the right Ephesians 1 verses 3 through 6 blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will. He predestined us to adoption as sons by the good pleasure of his will. He bestowed that kind of a grace upon us. And so now back to Romans chapter 8. Verse 15 says, For you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. The word Abba here a very special word we cry out now Abba Father it's, a, it's an Aramaic word which makes it kind of uh, stand out here in this Greek text <clears throat> why use that Aramaic word Abba here uh, Aramaic spoken by the Jews at the time of Christ was very similar to Hebrew and the A-B Ab there is, uh, stands for father. Like in Abraham, Abraham, father of many nations. Or uh, Abijah, A-B-I-J-A-H. A-B is father and I is of me, my. And Jah, J-A-H is short for Yahweh. So uh, Abijah means uh, my uh, my. Father is God. God is my father. So it's kind of a neat name, Abijah. Uh, then you have Abner. Ab for father. Abner means my father is a nerd. <laughs> I... 
maybe bending the Hebrew a little bit there. But, the, but Sophie, Sophia means wisdom. So the saving grace here is my mother is wise. <laughs> but, but why use the word Abba here? We have received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out. That from our innermost being, we, we cry out, Abba, Father. Well, I believe it communicates four things to us. One is, it communicates the closeness of the relationship. As, as you probably have heard, the, the idea of the word Abba is, uh, is, is similar to our saying Daddy. It's something informal. It's something very personal. It's like crying out to God as Daddy. And it... it uh, shows us the closeness of our relationship first of all that we do not have a God who is afar off and cannot be reached by us but who, who invites us to come to him and to pour our hearts before him and, and, and to come before him crying out daddy and he loves us that much we're his children secondly I believe it it's used to communicate the dependence of our relationship with God. Just as a small child would, would cry out, Daddy, help me. The idea of being a, one of, of in great need and being dependent. And uh, so it is with our relationship with God. Uh, we, we need him to help us and to reach down to us and to pick us up and to strengthen us and to provide for us and to care for us and our utter dependence every day is on our heavenly father our daddy thirdly it's I believe to communicate our identification with Christ why this word Abba Go back to Mark 14.36. The Jews would not have dared to refer to God as Abba. They even objected to Christ saying, My Father... Mark 14, verse 36, Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane, just before the cross, of course. We see in verse 36 as he is praying. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will. It is in our identification with Christ that we are so closely identified with him. He is the firstborn among many brethren. He's our Lord and Savior. But he's our brother too. And he cried out to God in this, this moment in the Garden of Gethsemane, Abba, Father. 
It's the one time in Scripture that Jesus uses that. The only place. Now, he might have referred to God by Abba in other places that aren't recorded, but this is the one recorded instance that we have. And for Paul then to use this in Romans 8.15 would hearken back to this first usage that the only other person to ever say of God, Abba, was Jesus Christ. And we are so closely united with him that it's like Paul is saying, we also can say that. We can come to God in that same way and identify with Christ that closely to be able to say with him, Abba, Father. But that also leads us into the fourth reason for using it, I believe, and that is to communicate our obedient surrender and unconditional faith in the Father. Which is what Jesus is doing in this very verse, isn't he? As he comes to Abba, Father, in prayer, in verse 36, all things are possible for you. Absolute faith in Abba, Father. But notice the unconditional surrender as well. Take this cup from me, nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will. And so to think of God as Abba, Father, is not a light thing. It's a very personal thing. It declares our dependence upon him and our obedient surrender to him and unconditional faith. Get back to Romans chapter 8. Finally, the, the Spirit confirms, verse 16 and 17. <clears throat> the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, that we may be also glorified together. The Spirit confirms that we are children of God, verse 16 says. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. In, in several ways, too, as we saw in verse 15, but you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. Now, as I said, that, that word Abba is not used very often. It's used in Mark 14.36. It's used here in Romans 8.15. And it's used in Galatians 4.6, the only other time that it's used. And there, as we saw in Galatians 4 earlier, the Spirit himself cries out within us, Abba, Father. So we have the Spirit crying out, Abba, Father. And because we have been adopted, we cry out, Abba, Father. And so there's this dual witness 
there's more than one witness, which was uh, a requirement of the Old Testament to have two or three witnesses. And so we have the witness of our own self crying out. We have the witness of the Spirit within us crying out, Abba, Father. So the Spirit himself, himself bears witness with our spirit. And one of the ways is how we, with childlike faith and dependence on God, call out to him. It is a witness to our adoption. We have received the spirit of adoption. And remember how the, uh, um, in the Roman system, there had to be uh, witnesses for this. And so the Holy Spirit is not only our seal until the day of redemption, he is the witness that we have been adopted and he's the ever-present witness with us. Well, in our own being, in our own self, how does the Spirit bear witness with our spirit that we are children of God? I take that to be, mean something internal with us. He bears witness with our spirit inside of us. Well, let me give you some, just some ways in which God does this. He bears witness with our spirit. For instance, when, when we have a desire to glorify Jesus, where does that come from? It comes from the spirit, who John 16 says, always seeks to glorify Jesus. And so that bears witness with our spirit that we are being led by the spirit and that we are children of God. When, um, when there is spiritual fruit in your life, the witness of the Spirit is there. Because where does that fruit comes from? come from? It's not from yourself. It's certainly not the fruit of the flesh. It is the fruit of the Spirit. Love and joy and peace and long-suffering and goodness and kindness and so forth. Those are all things brought about in you by the Holy Spirit. And that is a witness of the presence of the Spirit. His witness in us that we are children of God. Uh, when the Spirit enables us to understand Scripture, maybe you're reading along in a passage and, and something is just leaps out at you or is meaningful to you or at a, a special time, and where does that come from? The, you, you, the only way you can have that is by the Holy Spirit enabling you, and that's a witness of the Holy Spirit in you. He bears witness with your spirit. You are indeed a child of God. When you have love for your brothers and sisters in Christ that is of the spirit so those are some examples of how the spirit witnesses with our spirit that we are children of God and if we are children we are also heirs with Christ verse 17 and if children then heirs heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ since we are children even though we are adopted we are counted as participants in the inheritance of Christ. You think about this. We, we don't deserve anything. What we deserve is hell. If we, if we got what we really deserve for our life, our sins, that's what we deserve. But, but God saves us from that by the sacrifice of his son on the cross. By grace, we are saved through faith and we don't deserve any of that but not only does God say I'm going to keep you out of hell and uh, allow you to live in heaven forever 
I'm going to go beyond that. I'm going to make you a co-inheritor with Christ. You not only get to go to heaven, you are going to be an inheritor with King Jesus. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. And that for those of us who deserve nothing, we get everything. Everything that Jesus receives by divine right, we receive by divine grace. What does that inheritance look like? We're going to see that in verses 18 through 30. Uh, This verse 17 serves kind of as a hinge verse between what came before and what follows introduces the topic of inheritance and then verse 18 through 30 describes what that inheritance looks like so we'll spend the next few weeks on 18 through 30 to see what the inheritance looks like so we won't take time today to look at that but but the inheritance uh, comes to its um, fulfillment at the culmination of all things We haven't received it all yet. We will one day. We are now children of God awaiting the culmination of all things and the inheritance. Now, there is um, a phrase here which has troubled many. And that is, um, and if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. Oh, that he would have just ended the verse there. But he goes on to this difficult phrase of, If indeed we suffer with him. Oh, I don't like that part. If indeed we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together. If indeed we suffer with him. This is not saying that you have to suffer a certain amount in order to earn the inheritance. Some have actually taken it wrongly like that. Um. This is not what it's saying. That you have to suffer a certain degree to earn the inheritance. Um, those of you who went to the uh, to Costa Rica trip a few years ago, uh, we went to a um, uh, particular Catholic church that was a place of pilgrimage, and people would come there, sometimes crawling on their knees. They'd start a mile or two before and and bloodied knees and hands and so forth to get there to wash in a spring that was there and thinking that that suffering guaranteed their inheritance more. It's a sad thing to watch those kinds of things happen. But Jesus suffered once for all. He suffered for us and paid our penalty once for all. So what does this mean then? Well, see how it says, if indeed? Uh, that same word, it's in Greek, it's this one word, is found in verse 9, if you go back there. But you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. Now that, it's uh, I pair, Jeremy, and it means uh, it's, it's assumed to be true that um, often can be translated like sense. Um, considering this to be true of you, that the Spirit of God dwells in you. 
Now, if that's not true of you, then you don't belong to him. That's what Paul goes on to say. But if the Spirit does dwell in you, then um, you're not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. The same kind of thing appertains to verse 17. And if we're children, then we're heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. If indeed we consider this to be true of us, this is going to happen, we suffer with him that we may also be glorified together. Um, Paul is, is putting forth here the unbreakable law of the kingdom that glory only comes through suffering. To participate in Christ's glory and kingdom, we must participate in his suffering. From the beginning of Jesus' ministry to the end of it, Jesus dis- demonstrated that glory only comes through suffering. And he said consistently, for instance, in the book of John, my hour has not yet come. Um, when, in the book of Matthew, when, uh, in Matthew 4, when he was tempted in the wilderness, and the, uh, um, the enemy, Satan, showed him all the kingdoms of the world and said, I will give all these to you. You can get them without suffering. I'll give them all to you if you will bow down to me. And Jesus said, no. She'll worship only God. He would not receive the kingdoms without the suffering, without the glory of the cross. The same thing is true for us. We don't take Satan's easy way out. We follow the example of our Lord. Look at John 12, 23. Jesus answered them saying the hour has come that the son of man should be glorified now it may have seemed like just with that bare statement that he meant I'm about to take my throne I'm about to take my kingdom and uh, be crowned king of Israel but he meant much more than that the hour had come for his glory for the son of man to be glorified the hour had finally come And to be glorified meant to die, as he goes on to explain. Not only to die, but to die on the cross. That was the way of glory, to suffer for us. Jesus said, if they smite the shepherd, they will also smite the sheep. If they hate me, they will hate you because of me. If they persecuted Christ, they will persecute his followers. Paul wrote, Yes, and all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. doesn't mean suffering like having a toothache or something like that. It means suffering for the sake of Christ. It can show up in so many different ways. Um, But a person who is living for Christ 
uh, will be called upon to make decisions, uh, to, to do things which will cost, to stand upon principle of the word. Look at Philippians 1.29. Let's, let's back up to verse 27 of Philippians 1. Only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of your affairs that you stand fast in one spirit, with one mind striving together for the faith of the gospel, and not in any way terrified by your adversaries, which is to them the proof of perdition, but to you of salvation. And that from God. That is being persecuted is not what makes you saved, but it is a proof. It's one of the signs that you belong to Christ if you suffer for his sake. Verse 29, for to you, to you it has been granted. Here's a gift for you. To you it has been granted on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. Philippians chapter 3. And we'll end here. Philippians 3, 7 through 10. Philippians 3, starting at verse 7. But what things were gained to me, these I have counted loss for Christ. The things that the world might count as really being worthy of emulating or holding up or holding on to I have counted loss for Christ they mean nothing to me yet indeed I also count all things loss for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord I'm willing to give up everything anything to know Jesus more (laughs) whatever it takes for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and I count them as rubbish that I may gain Christ I mean, if you compare everything in your life to Christ everything in your life Christ which one do you want these are like garbage to me Paul says compared to Christ Verse 9, and be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death. The fellowship of his sufferings. The communion of his sufferings. Whatever it takes. We are called children of God. 
And if children, joint heirs with Christ. That we might one day in him be glorified together. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we thank you for the grace by which you have called us into your own family. By virtue of the cross of our Lord and Savior, you have taken away our sin. And you have enabled us to be called children of God. Lord, I pray if there's any here who do not know you and they're, they're not certain that they're in the family of God, they're not certain that their sins have been forgiven, that they might come to you to know that you are ready to forgive sin, to pardon, to fill their life with your spirit and to guide them in the way everlasting. And for us who know you, Lord, may we rejoice all the more in you that we are indeed your children. And uh, may our lifestyle, the way we, we live this day and the days to come, reflect that we are, we are children of God. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand and